Welcome to another episode of the Corrosion Journal interview series. My name is Sammy Miles, the Managing Editor-in-Chief of Corrosion Journal. Today, I'm excited to continue our editor roundtable discussion from last month. In our last episode, we discussed the current state of corrosion research, and today we're going to focus more on the future. I'm joined by Dr. Arian Mull, co-editor-in-chief of Corrosion Science, Dr. Sana Virtanen, technical editor of the Corrosion Science section of the Journal of the Electrochemical Society, Dr. Nick Berbalis, co-editor-in-chief of Materials Degradation, and Dr. John Scully, the technical editor-in-chief of Corrosion Journal. Thank you all for joining me today. Thank you. So to kick off our discussion today, what changes do you think we'll see in the future corrosion research? And what do you think some of those big research ideas will areas will be in a few years? Thanks, Sammy, for, for this, this, this kind introduction and, and indeed the great opportunity to discuss with my colleagues and, and share our thoughts and views on, on current and, and future trends in our uh, exciting uh, uh, research times. Um, so, so last time, indeed, we, we, we discussed a bit the uh, the upcoming uh, research topics, including uh, computational um, uh, modeling, uh, in situ integrated, say, uh, electrochemical, spectroscopic, and microscopic techniques in, in one um, very hostile environments that we are uh, facing also for uh, for the uh, for the future and and, and there we, we touched upon indeed the big drivers such as materials and energy transition requirements well leading uh, leading us to to use different energy generation storage transport and, and use requirements and we can think about geothermal applications photovoltaics hydrogen based power technology wind energy applications etc which all need to operate at demanding conditions. So, uh, so high pressure, aggressive chemicals, um, high temperatures, etc. And when we think about, say, low uh, strategies towards low carbon uh, technologies, we can distinguish uh, different energy needs, uh, say, or, or technologies, you know, solar photovoltaics, stationary storage and networks, uh, including smart grids, low carbon mobility applications and, and wind power. And, and some of the materials that we are currently using uh, are uh, not uh, abundantly available uh, for different reasons, just because they are not out there or for geopolitical reasons, not always uh, easy to spread around uh, the globe and, and to be used where, where we actually want to use them. Uh. Think about silver and, and cobalt. Um, so, so cobalt is considered unavoidable uh, for permanent magnets and in mainstream batteries uh, also uh, for future applications and the demand for, for, for cobalt increased sharply uh, with batteries accounting for less than 30% of the total demand in 2000 but 60% in 2019 and so, so not only the corrosion research field but, but I would say material science and engineering as in a broader sense um, is, is crucial for uh, the energy and the materials transition and, and includes the needs for uh, material substitution, lowering the use of critical materials and elements, novel recycling approaches, and, and those will all highly impact, I think, the corrosion research topics and strategies for many years to, uh, to come. So indeed, when we talk about big research areas, I, I would say, uh, one of them is at least uh, uh, the one for uh, uh, materials in, in, in novel energy applications. Absolutely. I completely agree. So this is Sana Wirtanen from University of Erlangen in Germany. 
So uh, certainly uh, the energy technologies uh, uh, are really bringing many new corrosion corrosion challenges for materials. And uh, of course, energy is one of the big challenges of our future. Corrosion in general, of course, is is in the middle of uh, the whole uh, development of or consider considerations of sustainability, so sustainable material science or sustainable society. And therefore, corrosion that can take place actually everywhere, as soon as a metallic material is not in a vacuum or so, we will mostly have some kind of uh, surface reactions with the environment. And of course, uh, in worst cases, they these reactions are really detrimental and 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 uh, safety issues and such come into play uh, in addition to of course just uh, losing resources by unnecessary corrosion so corrosion research will continue going on forever as long as metallic materials are being used in different type of applications so corrosion research will never stop in my opinion and well rust never sleeps as we know so uh, in addition to energy of course, we have other big challenges, so energy and then, of course, all the environmental considerations really are big topics, but also health. And in all these, all these challenges of the future, uh, we also have corrosion challenges. So what exactly will be the big questions in corrosion research uh, in the next years or even for longer term considerations depend, of course, a little bit on, on the specific uh, uh, direction these uh, fields will be developing into. But uh, yes, we will have uh, a lot of work to do. And for fortunately, we are currently in a situation that we really have very good tools uh, to work on these research questions. So both very uh, high level, sophisticated experimental techniques, and then of course, all the uh, data science and, and uh, other developments uh, and progress in computational and theoretical approaches. Anna, that was a wonderful description. This is Nick here from Deakin University. And look, um, one of the items we picked up in the first episode of our podcast was big data and uh, data you know, emerging and eating up the world. And I think it would be remiss if I didn't mention some future trends in not just you know broadly in computation, but I'll drill it down a little bit more when we're talking about specifically artificial intelligence. So at the moment, um, it's it's very difficult to not go a day uh, of news and not hear something about chat GPT. But these natural language processing models that sit behind these GPT tools uh, are actually happening uh, in the area of materials and, and the area of corrosion already. And so I thought I'd give an example from the journal that I work in. So a few years ago, uh, our most highly cited paper was a, a review paper about chromate replacements and what the future might hold. It was based on, you know, a cumulative knowledge of uh, dozens of years of research experience from the authors. If you put up, you know, the research experience and add it all up, you know, it was many decades of experience and many hundreds of hours of literature review and reading and analyzing. Um, just last month, we published a paper that used the underlying principles in these GPT models, specifically the same technology that runs the Google search engine. And we asked it the question, what are the best corrosion inhibitors to replace chromates? 
And it was able to tell us very quickly what exactly what was said after dozens of years of research from researchers before. So being able to now ask simple questions and interact um, with the scientific community in a different way is really important. So one could, I haven't tried this, but one could go to a GPT model and ask it, should I be using aluminium in nitric acid or should I be using a certain grade of steel um, for a certain application? You'll get an answer now. I know uh, Professor Scully is a real expert in, in, you know, in, in this context and what the pitfalls are. You will get answers. Now, whether or not they're good answers right now, we don't know. We think they're probably not very good answers, but things are moving very quickly. And I think, you know, it's it's a bit like this sort of Moore's law. So whatever uh, GPT models tell you now, in about a year, they'll be probably 10 times better. In five years, they'll be 100 times better, right? And then we're really talking. And so, uh, you know, I also want to give another example because an area that's emerging, and you can see it at these AMP conferences as well, is the use of smart detection tools. So things like computer vision, where through images, be it from cameras or videos or drones, you can do an automatic corrosion assessment as a visual expert would do. So using trained computer vision models to actually see corrosion without a human. And in some cases to be able to assess it. So things like crack lengths, crack widths and so forth. And what's really interesting is those are completely different things to what we were doing before. And it sort of brings the research and practical and applied nexus a little bit closer because we're seeing trends that re, uh, relate to technology that's only sort of one sort of arm's length displaced from field deployment. And so that that is also, um, you know, bridging a little bit of a gap there. But look, I could talk about this forever. I think it's probably cognizant though to say that even though we have a lot of big data and a lot of things that we could be doing, there's plenty of pitfalls that we'll need to cover as a community. And I think we probably don't even have enough time in this podcast to do that. If I had one wish, you know, to ha perhaps have avoided these pitfalls and we can't change history, is if we had a time machine and could go back 100 years and had asked everyone to give their corrosion results in, you know, standard units in terms of molarity of uh, electrolytes, uh, units in which they uh, reported corrosion rates and so forth, in which case the data that we actually have access to would be much more meaningful. But in some areas, even though we have access to data, we are starting from a, a standing start because the way in which the data is prepared and the way we can access it isn't really what we need to build sophisticated models. So a lot of care still needs to be taken as we evolve into this sort of digital era. Um, hello, everybody. This is John Scully. And uh, I'm the technical editor-in-chief of Corrosion Journal and a professor of material science and engineering at University of Virginia. Uh, welcome back uh, for, to our second podcast in this series. And we have, I want to first reach out to uh, Sammy Miles and thank her for organizing this. And also I want to reach out to our, our guests. Uh, we're really most fortunate and delighted to have you here. And this is a great conversation. Uh, I just want to pick up for a second and uh, the interesting comments by Nick Burbles about uh, these expert systems and whether or not we could use chat GPT or we could uh, use um, some other uh, capability to pick the best inhibitor that might be a replacement for, for chromate. And I just wanna say that this is actually being done widely now. People are asking the question, for instance, if I, if I ask chat GPT, if I, you know, what do I need for a hypersonic material uh, that, that instead of oxidation resistance at 800 degrees centigrade, I want to know what to do to get oxidation, oxidation resistance at 
3,000 degrees centigrade, um, even if I'll be only temporary. And so we're starting to say, well, I will look at all 15,000 publications on the subject and they will tell me uh, what the consensus is. And uh, I don't know how that's going, but I've started to see some proposals written that are proposed uh, doing that kind of thing. So we're in a, a new frontier, I think, where there's a lot of interesting things going on. Um, and I don't think that'll be held back, but I do think there's some things to think about. One for the corrosion field that I think is true of all fields, but particularly for us is data cleansing or the quality of data. And as we know, you know, the thing about corrosion being so complicated, we have all these environmental variables, all these physical variables, and then all these what I call materials or substrate variables. And so, as you know, you know, what we measure, what we call a property, what we measure often depends on how we do the experiment in corrosion. So that adds to the complexity. So there, there will be a need for, I think a big part of this, uh, and you already see this in the business sectors, is a need for data cleansing um, and, and some way to sort the data. And then I, I'm still um, interested to see what will happen if you use a natural language approaches to you know, kind of come up with the best ideas. Uh, in your research and not have a not have sort of traditional uh, hypothesis driven um, the experts read the literature and see what the needs gaps and opportunities are but you no longer do that you now rely on you know one something that can the carnivore that can read all the data I don't know how that will go but I will say one thing else another thing happening along these lines is that as has been happening happening for a long time in pharmaceuticals I think there, there's going to be a need for not only um, these kinds of things, but also something that can take high throughput data and have massive or, or very rapid data interpretation. So that's going to be a new frontier also for Progens, the idea that you could gather a million data points on a million different inhibitors or a million different room temperature ionic liquids um, you know, you, you might, you're going to no longer be able to analyze this sort of by hand, so to speak. Um, and we see the same thing with material selection. That now material selection um, won't be able to do it using expert intuition. It'll have to be done by using, um, not only relying on the data informatics, but also sort of high throughput experiments. Um, and so that's, that's an area. I also wanted to come back to some of my colleagues who had some great comments um, on sustainability, you know, there's an increasing pressure and need to have a circular economy. The, the projections of the material use, even the, the seven or nine, but most basic elements, um, is only going to increase as time goes by. The projections into the future um, really look like there will be uh, fantastic growth in the need for um, materials. And uh, added on top of that is the complexity of our components. So just to consider it, it, that uh, according to the Ashby Sustainability Book, that um, you know the light bulb used to have five or seven materials in it. And the only one that was even critical at all was the tungsten, right? Now, if you look at light bulbs, they have 23 materials in them. Smartphones have 50 some materials in them versus an old dollop phone had a couple of materials. A couple, you know, now there are 53 elements in the periodic table are in a small smartphone and 25 of them are on uh, the critical materials list by the U.S. Geological Survey. Uh, and, and then we also have problems with uh, that, are, that are more, um, uh, you know, sort of social justice issues like the mining of cobalt. 
uh, et cetera. So there's immense pressure on uh, the corrosion field and play a huge role in the durability, but not only the durability and the recycling. So I think we need some new recycling methods. And just to remind you that electronic waste, like the kind of waste where you only have a few grams of gold, only a few grams of cobalt, such as in a smartphone, that the corrosion community is going to be needed to try to understand how you will retrieve these elements, how you will get the gold out of there. As you know, your CO2 footprint for doing this is much smaller than the primary metals production. And um, so I think there's gonna be a new, some new fields emerging that the corrosion community can spend a big part in. And there's gonna be an editorial coming out in Corrosion Journal on this. But one is the emerging field of solvable metallurgy. So by using things like room temperature ionic liquids, uh, which by the way, there are over a million possible room temperature ionic liquids, and it's called uh, the designer solvent. Uh, the society should be able to, if we're able to master this, we should be able uh, to do solvable metallurgy, which is very selective recycling of elements and very selective uh, removal. So there are some opportunities out there uh, in, in, in our future that the corrosion community should play a role in because a lot of it's just uh, de-alloying principles uh, where you take advantage of solubilization that is that is that is a, 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 a afforded to you by a room temperature and liquid. Uh, however, that's challenging. How would you go through a, a, a million different room temperature ionic liquids to find out the ones that are the most suitable for recycling cobalt or recycling nickel, you know, or whatever it is, or recycling gold, even for that matter? And uh, right now, there are actually two patents on recycling of gold, and they're both ionic liquids. I don't know if the, the community was aware of that. So I think that's a big area where in order to have a sustainable economy, we've got to do well with the, do better really with the durability and the recycling part and the corrosion community should play a role. So hopefully some of that will appear in journals because as Nick said, you know, I think that dissemination of information broadly, it's that kind of stimulus of ideas to the journals, all, all the journals and my colleagues here today can, can um, be beneficial to sort of spurring or, or stimulating the field. I'd also mentioned that um, Couple of the other things are going on. The, the uh, there's a you know the cyber physical world. People talk a lot about um, cyber security, and that certainly is worthy. But there's some sort of the smart city concept is going to happen. And the question is whether or not uh, water supply, for instance, is a part of the smart material mon uh, monitoring. And I wanted to mention that I think it's in the Netherlands already, but there's already uh, some groups that work on piping what you would do. Uh, to, to monitor piping to see whether or not you got uh, some episodic event that uh, was bad for the potable water. Uh, and so that's already being done. And then lastly, I'd like to say that there's always going to be new materials. You know, there will be a new frontier for materials and probably five to 10 years from now, it'll be different than the last one was. But I think there's a big opportunity for corrosion, not just to be an afterthought, but not just to be uh, expert intuition, but I think there's enough data and enough science and enough rigor to what we do. And you see it in, in all the journals every day. Uh, there's enough rigor to be able to be in on the ground floor of integrated computational materials design. So corrosion should no longer be on the sideline, but should be an integral part from day one uh, in, the, in the design of materials. And um, so thank you for, for this great discussion. And uh, I think I'll stop there.
those were great points from everyone. I, I want to kind of go in, circle back to something that a few of y'all mentioned about kind of the challenges that we may face in the future. And some of what y'all were saying also made me think of the different pitfalls that we could fall into um, as we move forward with research. Do, do any of y'all have any comments on, you know, what some of the other challenges that y'all haven't mentioned yet that we that may be on the horizon that people might want to try to plan ahead if they can, not that we can all plan the future, but Maybe indeed, this is Erin uh, again. So, so thanks, Sammy, for uh, for for picking uh, up on this. I think we, we've we've covered already quite quite some ground. I think in different technologies, different new capabilities that we have been uh, able to develop, and and indeed, I think we are definitely at the forefront these days. I would say of of, of new uh, developments for 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 many applications, in, in, uh, including those energy ones or or health related uh, technologies and. Um, I think indeed these computational um, capabilities also come with indeed pitfalls. Huh? I think, but also opportunities. There is, um, uh, I think, in the past uh, when, when we compare it to predicting the weather, I don't think uh, tens of years ago we were not able to predict the weather for the next day, and now we can predict at least in the Netherlands. I'm not sure all over the globe, but we we can pretty much predict uh, for the next 14 days. Uh, 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 the weather. So I think the same will go for uh, the, these uh, the, these computational uh, tools that we have available. But I think we really should keep indeed uh, our, our feet on on the ground in that respect. Also, I think it provides a lot of capabilities, but then again, uh, indeed, also with the risk of trying to dig too too deep, we come to the interpretation of things. So I think a, a critical attitude towards each other and, and, and including. I would say ethical boundaries, and not only for the research, but also in terms of uh, publishing and 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 informing the, the 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 general public in that sense. I think that's a big responsibility for our uh, for our community there, and and I think we all try to do our best to yeah to to keep our eyes wide open rather than uh, uh, tightly shut uh, there. So. Yeah, I think we have a big responsibility also there across the different uh, uh, journals that we are uh, that we are covering as a whole, but also in our public reach out. Absolutely, and uh, I would like to also a very short remark on related what Nick and John both already mentioned. Uh, so I I found the uh, example that Nick mentioned about uh, asking ChatGPT this question and getting actually more or less. The right conclusion. It's great, and I, I'm actually, uh, I'm a little bit. I, I'm absolute no expert in in these kind of systems, and quite originally, I had a little bit like a rejective attitude. I thought that uh, it's it's simply a little bit dangerous because I didn't really know how the, these things are going, and now I find it quite fascinating. And I think uh, all the developments now in artificial intelligence and so on will have a great impact on our future and also on our research and other issues. But John mentioned is, of course, that corrosion processes are really quite complex. So uh, it's really the material service, it's the environment and the interface. There is, uh, it's it's uh, really highly dynamic systems and the service and the interface are changing uh, with time and we deal with different length scales from atoms to really large scale macroscopic phenomena. So at least currently, we I still it really still needs uh, 
uh, also human understanding to to check what, for instance, uh, these systems are giving, what kind of answers they are giving to us. But I think uh, we should have an open uh, open attitude to to deal with these systems and 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 see how they can help us and uh, not not go uh, to the direction uh, like there are some tendencies also just principally say no it's forbidden to use this use these systems because uh, they will have a huge impact and and if we if we deal with them in in a good way if we learn how to how to work together with for instance artificial intelligence then uh, it's going to be a very very highly fascinating development i think Sana, this is Nick here, and uh, I think you've hit it right on the head because you you said the word human. I think these uh, Sammy's question was quite broad on what are the pitfalls. Now, clearly, as corrosion experts, we have a responsibility to make sure that people people are safe. And as we as technology advances, applications advance. You know, we we will probably all have electric vehicles very soon. Who knows? In the future, we may have flying vehicles. You know, and the accelerated insertion of materials and correlating long-term response with short-term response still is a bit of a holy grail of a question. So I think we also need to remain human in our assessments, which I think uh, Aryan had mentioned. And Senna, I think you're dead right in that these AI models really should be expert systems that help inform a human to make a better decision. If you ask me, I guess, what the one pitfall is, I'll take a different take on your question, Sammy, and I guess... At the treetops level, every now and then there is a study published on the cost of corrosion worldwide as a proportion of GDP. Dating back, there's been several in the US. There was a recent one in China, but you could pick any country, any time. And one thing that keeps me up, I think it probably keeps all of us up, is that the cost of corrosion as a portion of G, uh, GDP is actually not dropping. It's been for the last for nearly 50 years the same amount of the GDP, which means we still need to educate people, we still need to train people, and we still need to uh, recover these you know, avoidable losses. So I guess education is also an important part of what we need to do because that cost is not going down and uh, and we continue as a community to often make the same mistakes and the same mistakes. So I think a big pitfall would be continuing to not educate people in corrosion more and more and more. And that's an enduring mission, which I think AMP was set up to achieve and we still need to do more. I wholeheartedly agree with that, Nick, by the way. And it's from, from my perspective, right? I'm not doing any research on it, but when you look at the cost of corrosion versus if you had just paid a little more upfront and avoided so many of the challenges that was coming up at the AMP conference this year in Denver as well. I mean, it's in the long run, it's so much cheaper if you just have some foresight, foresight whenever you're going about your project, if you can. Um, but I do think that education is a huge element Dr. Scully, did you have any comments on um, some of the challenges? I, I think one of the, just picking up on the point about the gross national product, and it's been quoted for over 60 years, what the percentage is of gross national product. I don't think that's a compelling argument. So in terms of the, the it, hasn't, it hasn't been. What we'd like to do is, is offer a different idea. Um, and, 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 and that is, if you look at like the national Academy of Sciences report on grand challenges uh, for society and for engineering 
and signs. I think that um, the group here today has already done this, I think, uh, is that you won't have clean, abundant, renewable energy unless you solve a corrosion problem. You will not have clean water um, unless some of these corrosion products, and not, not to you know be hyperbolic and exaggerate, but I think that the corrosion in a lot of cases can be the showstopper. Uh, and in terms of what I can see on, on some of the Gen 4 nuclear reactors that we talked about uh, in the last podcast, uh, and, and not this time, if you go back to that, I think some of the materials issues are, are, are you know, quite concerning. Uh, the, the basic fission, fission part of it has been worked out. And the fact that there are huge advantages, they operate, they don't operate under pressure. You don't need to be under pressure like a hot water reactor, like a pressurized water reactor. And there's some inherent safety advantages. Some people say you already have a meltdown because the radium fluoride fuel is in, a, is in the molten salt. So you can't have a meltdown, a meltdown per se. Um, but I think the corrosion you know, it, it plays a, like a showstopper roadblock type of view in a lot of these issues. And so I think that's one of our challenges to continue to work with the messaging um, in, in, in order to, to convey that. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also not, if you look at the circular materials economy, it's not just um, end over end, more and more durability. You, you certainly, there's a time and a place for durability beyond our lifetimes. Um, and, and, you know, with the nuclear waste, spent fuel nuclear canister, for instance, where you might want to go for a 10,000 year lifetime to, you know, because at such point, the radionuclides uh, have decayed and you don't have as much radiation concerns. But, you know, durability really needs to be tuned to the lifetime of a device. And that's, I think, the point made in the set the sustainability uh, books that you see, you know, coming out, such as Mike Ashby's book on sustainability. And what, what needs to be done is durability needs to be, you know, sort of the, the, the right sense of durability. Like, for instance, take a smartphone. We talked before about the need to recycle the e-waste from that and the role the corrosion can, can play. But actually, the end of life for those devices ends up being, you know, as you, you know, consumer sort of driven, you know, iPhone, you know, goes to the next model and the previous model becomes. So you don't need material durability uh, for infinity. You need material durability for the economic, the sort of viable functional lifetime of the device uh, driven by a variety of variables. And so the better the corrosion community can stay connected to um, every uh, every other issue, the better off the corrosion. And that's one of the challenges to make sure we have like a seat at the table, make sure decisions on things, decisions on things are not made, you know, in the in the absence of that. And certainly a part of it is to keep, um, you, you know, to, to keep to, to keep generating people educated uh, in, from the corrosion field um, in order to play that role of having that seat at the table uh, in these discussions. Because um, as we all know, it isn't going away. I want to pivot slightly and really quickly um, touch on some of the technology. Um, we, we've touched on the chat GPT and some of those AI chatbot earlier. How do you think that technology will affect publishing and the way that we share and consume research as we move forward? Yeah, I think that's an excellent point of discussion, uh, Sammy. Uh, this is Arian. Uh, and, and maybe I want to throw in a few few things here. And is that indeed these these large language models or tools like a jet, a chat GPT, I think 
it should assist us, but not lead the way or eh, not completely to be relied on, I would say, uh, when it comes, for example, to writing a, a scientific uh, paper. Eh? Because it, it, it will help, but, but what it will not do really is, is to do some critical thinking or uh, critical analysis and, and interpretation of, of data with uh, with a human uh, eye, eye to it. So I, I think they are... Uh, very helpful and indeed and, and we, we they are the way forward and, and we should use them very in many ways i would say but um i don't think that that we can do without uh the nuance that a human writer for example for uh, for for a scientific paper crafting uh, does and, and and well they may struggle to generate text that that is well resonant or deeply uh, insightful. So, so I think um, um, I think it, it will not um, um, well lead the way in a sense that that ultimately we still would need the uh, unique capabilities of of, of human um, uh, writers and, and input and, and, and uh, make them irreplaceable in many contexts. I mean, the, the scientists that we are in the lead of, of writing scientific papers. Huh? So. Uh, also, as an entity, uh, tools like Chat uh, GPT um, um, cannot take on the responsibility and be accountable for anything that we uh, that we do in our studies and that we publish and put out in the open to colleague scientists and, and, and in particular also to uh, the, the society as a whole. Uh, given that and what was very uh, uh, well mentioned by by my colleagues here, uh, all. Um, by Nick, by by Sana, and by by John, indeed, that the complexity of of the world that we are uh, trying to understand and, and describe in in terms of corrosion, understanding of corrosion and its protection, is so overly uh, complex these days that as a scientific community, we even have difficulty to grasp uh, the, the complexity of of it all. Let alone, I would say, the society around us, without the specific knowledge that we have. So. Um, I think in both in, in our scientific communications as well as the outreach to the public, we have a, a big task to to fulfill. And and indeed, Nick, Nick mentioned it very, very nicely. I think our role in education is, is something that uh, our responsibility there will not, will not decrease, but, but mostly increase. Uh, so, yeah, so... so Things so topics like reflective engineering huh, for material scientists as a as as a as a in, in a broader sense I think will be uh, uh, well very important. So the constant awareness that uh, tools that uh, say computational uh, modeling uh, capabilities and and indeed Chat GPT alike and the like uh, are helpful, but um, hopefully not. Um, uh, take away our responsibilities as as humans as as well as scientists. So I think that is something that I would like to to stress. I I, I fully agree with you, and uh, of course uh, we as editors in, in journals must also really be aware of what what may be happening in house how how pay, for for instance an introduction in a research paper may be written in the future. So ChatGPT is really fast if you ask him a question. Um, and of course, it is developing all the, all the time. So one thing is really, of course, in publishing, uh, where 
where of course now there's also a lot of discussions going on how to deal with these things with these issues and the second thing is of course also what we all are dealing with because we are all university educators so uh how will for instance chat gpt influence uh, uh teaching or for instance examinations at universities so uh this is something that is it, it's been incredible, like from the first time when I heard this word, like for instance, these chatbots and whatever, how how fast uh, these discussions got more and more. And, and we also like uh, here, for instance, in my group, we are uh, discussing also, I mean, we are sometimes we are just like children playing with chat GPT, but then also I, I think it's also our responsibility as more senior people, maybe in the field to to also maybe find a good way how to educate the next generation to deal uh, in a very in, in a proper way with these kind of tools. Thanks, Anna. Um, you folks have covered that I think really really well, um, and and I guess Adian, you know this these aspects of whether or not there's reasoning in AI. Clearly, there isn't reasoning; it can't do human level. But look, I'll offer a, I guess, a, what I think is hopefully an optimistic take on the question, Sammy. And how will technology change the way in which we ingest information? Um, I'm going to come out with a bit of a confession, maybe not such a wild confession, but even I like watching a little bit of TikTok, especially before bed, right? And swiping through 30-second videos, I could do it all night. In fact, sometimes I do do it all night. And uh, I think it's probably high time that we think about uh, engaging on that theme of education, engaging different demographics by different means. I think the technology provides us an opportunity to be able to do that perhaps in a way that, that can be meaningful and at the personal collection level, uh, you know, personal connection level, there will there will always be a space for needing peer review, for needing uh, properly referenced papers and deep technology in papers. That will not go away. It's more about how can we use technology to add, engage, and get key messages across as well. So who knows? Um, look out. Maybe one of us will be the first of the journals to go down that path. But I think regardless of who it is, and why they do it. I think it's an important route as there are other emerging technologies right now. And I mean, Corrosion Journal is uh, has been around for a long time, but only very recently has jumped on social media and its messages are getting stronger, better and being more amplified. And it does take time as well, but that's another enabling platform. I think that's here to stay. At a more practical level, I, I, I would just like to add that, and, and I really, Again, thank our colleagues here for their, their insightful uh, discussion, points all which I agree with. But I think at a more practical level, uh, corrosion community will need to pay attention to what's being done at NIH because normally uh, the what comes out in the United States is requirements, at least for federally funded grants, will be sort of the NIH leads the way and what where they're doing it. So we'll have to look at that. And that brings us to some really basic ideas that I'll bring up, which is just data curation. And something I mentioned earlier, like during the last podcast, which is um, data cleansing. Um, and, and a little bit during this um, this uh, podcast. But I think that, um, so just the data curation is interesting for me. So the taxpayers paid for the data if it's a US federal grant. And so the taxpayer should get the data. You know, and a company will get it. But then 
you know, there's just what what are the boundaries? And really, it's a sort of the Wild West of what the boundaries are, are going to be put on this. And I think they need to have some. For instance, for me, I've even had spots. I said, well, sure, we'll put the data from all the tables that make it into the publication. So if it makes it through peer review, we'll put it up there wherever you want. Um, but some sponsors have actually said, well, you know, we want your pay data too, because somebody can learn from that. And indeed, someone can learn from that. But then how those concepts, so these are little, little issues, not the, the grand view of my of my colleagues, which I certainly agree with, but just what will we do? Will we put bad data up there or not put it up there? Because I don't think that a guest can come in necessarily and look at that and really reconstruct everything you did, like a data accident investigation to know why it's bad. And so I'm not sure bad data should be put up there. And you know, one very simple notion is just the idea of the data that makes it through peer review. Um, you know, is, is something that should that should be shared, especially when the sponsor uh, that, dictates that as a stipulation. Um, as far as the uh, machine learning goes and data informatics, I mean, I do think um, what will happen in the future, and it's only a healthy form of progress, you know, in, in all of our journals, all these editors are confronted with papers that are in mature subject areas. And it doesn't mean they shouldn't be published, but there's a hundred references on the topic, or maybe more, you know, stainless steel pitting corrosion, there's probably thousands of references. And so, you know, what's compelling? What, what are the needs, gaps, and opportunities? And I think some of the machine learning can help to identify that or the chat GPT. However, it should probably be cited properly. So, you know, one should know when they read the paper that somehow that uh, this, this uh, condensation of uh, condensed version of what the critical needs, gaps, and opportunities are came from, you know, asking chat GPT or, you know, this comes from these 100 references that I cite here. And there needs to be, this is all very boring stuff, but I think there needs to be some protocol to this. Otherwise it gets, I think it gets out of hand very quickly. Um, but I do think that this sort of data informatics can be healthy if used properly, that it can identify what experiments you can do. If you're seeing some relationship, remember there's no science in this, as Nick has pointed out. You know, you're basically it's taking the data that's available. In fact, I think an interesting experiment would be to take out parts of the database that it relies upon. And so these natural language tools, you know, if you take the data out, what what kind of what, what conclusion would they get about chromate replacement inhibitor uh, if you were to do this or that or to the to the data? If you take out the data from a certain region of the world, or if you take out the data from a certain time period, how does that change the result? And so we should all be cognizant of those things. And students, the future engineers, uh, at least at UVA, it looks like they'll all have data science type classes in their curriculum, which is something I cannot say for my generation. But it can be very healthy because if you say, well, okay, we see these four relationships. So maybe you should do your experimental design to see why we see these four, four relationships. And as Arian said much earlier in the conversation, it could just be, that the correlation is not caused. For instance, what happens on a sunny day uh, is not caused. So it can be very useful, but I think with a little bit of control uh, and a little bit of a protocol like publication committees uh, that run journals have can probably um, keep this from getting out of control uh, very readily. Maybe I'm too optimistic about that. So if people wanna get in touch with you later, what is the best way for them to reach you? Ideally, I would like to meet all of you in, in person. Uh, so this is Arian. 
Ariel Mol, indeed. I hope we can uh, meet up uh, in in a live uh, fashion at a conference or whatever sort of uh, of, of meeting. But else, uh, please drop me an email, and uh, I hope to respond to you at my uh, earliest convenience. So, feel welcome. Yes. Also, from my side, I'm always happy to uh, to discuss corrosion issues. So, uh, if you meet me. Uh, you can come and and we can we can discuss, and uh, otherwise also email is probably the best way to reach me. And also I will try to uh, reply as fast as possible. And if it takes a little bit longer, then send a second email. If in case your first email arrived in a really really bad time. Excellent. And I'm Nick here, and happy to be contacted by any means whatsoever. Um, through the socials and certainly by email. So I'm looking forward to engaging. Yes, fantastic. And I, in my case, Tom Scully here, um, JRS8D as in Delta at Virginia.edu. But, you know, as my colleagues have mentioned, I go to a lot of different conferences and uh, feel free uh, to, to discuss things or, or reach out to me. Introduce yourself, please do at a, at a conference. Uh, I love meeting people and talking to them about their research or uh, something else that they so desire. And last but not least, uh, Charlottesville is uh, just a pleasant one and a half, maybe two hour drive through the countryside from Dulles Airport in Washington, DC. So please feel free to contact us about a visit. Fantastic. Um, with that, that concludes our episode for today. I'm Sammy Miles. I'm here with Ariane Moll, Sana Virtanen, Nick Berbalis, and John Scully. And thanks for listening to another episode of Corrosion Journal's interview series. You can subscribe to AMP Podcasts if you haven't already on Apple, Google, Spotify, and all the major distributors. If you want to learn more about the journal, make sure to visit corrosionjournal.org. You can also find all episodes of AMP Podcasts on amp.org. That's A-M-P-P dot O-R-G. We will be back soon with another episode. Thank you for listening.